Good morning, please be seated. Welcome to St. Mary's Church on this Feast of the Pentecost. This morning I'm going to try to articulate a way of looking at Pentecost that's maybe a little different from what you've heard before. But first let's look briefly at the history and significance of the feast. Pentecost has its roots in the Jewish festival of Shavuot. Jews celebrate Shavuot 50 days after the first day of Passover. And this year is a little bit unusual in that the first day of Passover was the same day as Easter. So that our Jewish friends are also celebrating Shavuot today. When Jerusalem had a temple, Shavuot was a pilgrimage feast for bringing the first fruits of the harvest to the temple, a thanksgiving for the bounty of the land. But when the temple was destroyed, Shavuot became mainly a celebration of God's gift of the Torah at Mount Sinai. These two seemingly unrelated themes, the fruitfulness of the land and the obeying of the Torah, are interwoven throughout scripture. You'll hear that interweaving a few times this morning. In the Christian uh, celebration of the Pentecost, the background is not mainly the agricultural festival, but the gift of God's Holy Spirit, with the result that everybody's speaking languages they don't know, but that are recognized by the crowd. What is it that they're talking about in all these languages? What was the message that was so important that the Holy Spirit wanted each person to hear it in their own language? The answer appears in Acts 2, verse 11. Thousands of pilgrims heard their own language in the apostles' mouths, recounting the mighty works of God. The mighty works of God. That's a stand-in for the whole sacred story of God's people culminating in the resurrection of Jesus and, more immediately, in the gift of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost can be viewed as a kind of crowning moment for the season of Easter. The whole point of Holy Week and Easter is the salvation of the world, and Pentecost is when that really begins to happen. At Easter, the good news was limited to Jesus' immediate followers, but with Pentecost, it starts to look global. Shavuot and Pentecost take place 50 days after the Passover and Easter. The number 50 is symbolic. Seven weeks of seven days each, 49 days. And the end of the seventh week was yesterday, so today is the beginning of the eighth week, remembering that the week runs from Sunday to Saturday. Two passages in scripture will help to understand the symbolism. First, in the creation story, God creates the world in six days, rests on the Sabbath, and then starts something new on the eighth day. The eighth day is the going forth into the world. Second, in Leviticus, God tells Israel that every 50 years would be a jubilee year, all debts canceled, all slaves released, and property that had been sold reverts to the original owners and to their heirs. So it seems to me clear 
that the symbolism of 50 is about a kind of cycle of history leading up to a reset that enables a new start. In Jerusalem, they heard about the mighty acts of God on Pentecost, and they no doubt realized that God was doing something new, something in continuity with those previous works of salvation, but beginning a new phase. Now, this brings me to the two stories that we heard read this morning. The first is the story of the Tower of Babel, and the second is the story of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. At first glance, it seems that Acts 2 is the antithesis of the Babel story. In Babel, so this reading goes, a communication starts out easy and becomes impossible. God seems to find binding a city to, or God seems, seems to find building a city to be threatening, and so confuses their language as a punishment. Now, I think this reading is rather shallow, and probably just plain incorrect. Here's what I think is a better reading of that story. The Babel story is the first major story in Genesis after the story of Noah, in which God reiterated the command given to Adam and Eve that they, quote, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The story is set in the plain of Shinar, which, uh, which is the Hebrew name for what we now call southern Iraq, the homeland of the Babylonian Empire. When the city is named Babel on account of the confusion of languages there, every ancient reader would have understood that this is the Babylon that spawned the empire that destroyed Jerusalem and its temple. Maybe there's a little backhanded snark in identifying Babylon with confusion. When God comes down to see the city and its tower, he finds there unity and solidarity. Sorry, I lost my spot. Uh, he finds there unity and solidarity empowered by a common language. And that's preventing them from carrying out the divine command. Now, God's commandment is be fruitful and multiply. And that's hardly a restriction on people's freedom and happiness. You hear me? He commands them to make babies and enjoy God's creation. It's a joyful commandment whose sole reason for existence is to promote human flourishing, but the Shinarites' cohesion as a group interferes with the command, uh, interferes with their ability of, to go forth into the world, to embrace and contribute to the world's bounty. There's a reciprocity and synergy that, um, uh, there's a reciprocity and synergy synergy between the fruitfulness of the land, the fruitfulness of the animals, and the fruitfulness of humans. Together, they help to create the bountiful world that God is making. That task is important to God because people are important to God. So God opposes any obstacle that stands in the way of it. What we read in the Babel story is not mere unity, but a kind of pathological unity that 
prevents the people from embracing God's world as a life-giving thing. Maybe they find the world too fearsome. Maybe that's why they want to build a city and a tower. Cities and towers in the ancient world were not about wealth and convenience and entertainment. They were about one thing, defense. Cities and towers were military operations. The tower reaching to the sky and the desire to make a name for ourselves so that we won't be scattered abroad, that's the language of Mesopotamian empires worrying about their security. At first blush, the story gives the idea that they're all just working, working happily together as friends to build a nice little monument or tall monument to themselves. But this has a dark side that isn't mentioned in the text but would surely have been in the minds of ancient readers. Public works like these are built not through common egalitarian effort but through enforced and slave labor. The language of unity is a code in their world as just as often as ours for everyone rallying behind some powerful person in what they want to do. So God's confusion of the languages and consequent destruction of that pathological unity is an act of grace. True, it's an act of judgment too. It's judgment against the coercive regime in favor of people. Our epistle reading, the story of the first Christian Pentecost in Acts chapter two, is a deliberate inversion of that Tower of Babel story. In Acts, the apostles are all gathered together on the 50th day after Jesus' resurrection, and Jesus, as promised, gives, gives the Holy Spirit. Divided tongues like fire come down and rest on each person, enabling them to speak the truth in many languages. In the Babel story, the diversity of language is the divine gift that sets humans back on the way of blessing rather than allowing them to stay entrenched in their morbid defensiveness. In the Acts story, the many languages are a simple fact. The miracle, the gift from God to the church, is the ability to speak and understand one another despite the many languages, by means of the many languages, and to speak uh, and to begin to tell the good news everywhere. In other words, in both stories, in Babel as well as in Jerusalem, God gives the gift of diversity. Hold on to that thought. Returning to the idea that the, that the Feast of Pentecost is the climax of the Easter story, let's unpack that a bit. Did you catch what Jesus said in the Gospel reading? That the disciples would soon be doing greater works than these, and that whatever they ask in Jesus' name he would do, John's Jesus ties this promise to the paraclete, which is usually translated comforter or helper. Our translation this morning was advocate. That's the paraclete. This is John's distinctive vocabulary for the Holy Spirit. No other New Testament writer uses it. The idea here 
is clearly that the paraclete is the source of the apostle's miraculous power that would go beyond even that of Jesus. Obviously, Jesus' eye-catching miracles, like healing the blind or calming a storm at the sea, those aren't really part of our experience today. So we have to entertain the possibility that the greater works he refers to are of a different kind. What if language, what if languages are also miraculous? In John's gospel, Jesus is the word. He's the message of love that God has been speaking in the world, now embodied in an actual person. But Jesus only spoke two, maybe three languages, and he could only give his love to, his, to a few followers just because of the limitations of being one person in one body. Jesus' followers, though, were becoming more numerous daily, so their ability to spread the good news exceeded his. The same goes for their ability to bring God's love to the world. These miracles are not the big attention-getters like some others, but they are the real power from God that enables us to do God's work. Greater things, even than Jesus. Sometimes I wonder if we lose track of the fact that Jesus was a real human being, just as we are. We get caught up in talking about his wonder-working, and his exaltation to divinity, and we find it impossible to believe that he really did think we would be doing greater things. At least I find that impossible to believe. Of course, he doesn't say that we'll be doing it by our own power. He says that, you know, that that's a gift of the Spirit. It's the paraclete's job. In giving the Spirit, Jesus gives the capacity to discern the truth, to speak it and live it, so that God's will is done on earth just as it is in heaven. He gives the ability to understand and love those who are different from us. That's the miracle. That's the greater things that we must do to help complete God's work in creation and in Christ's resurrection. The world of the early Christians was, like ours, a messed up place. Everywhere people tell us that what we need is more unity. Now, I don't think that's necessarily bad. I think probably most of them really mean more love or less conflict or something like that. But a demand for unity as such, even when it's couched in friendly terms, is in some degree coercive. Love exists not in unity, but in diversity. To love someone because they're the same as me isn't love, it's narcissism. Only when somebody is different can, from me can love develop. Diversity is dangerous only to those who insist on conformity. How do we resist the forces that seek to train us into a single controllable mold, to try to enlist us in projects that do us and our neighbors actual harm? 
How do we resist forces in the church and in all our institutions that want to circumscribe our thoughts and our convictions? We take our many voices out into the world, glorifying God and freeing people from their bondage, living joyfully in the refreshing diversity that is God's gift to us. Because diversity is the soil in which love can grow. I'm going to do what I can to declare that there is room for radical diversity of every kind, that it is a gift much to be sought in the body of Christ. Now on day 50, we have another Pentecost. We have another invitation to go forth in the power of the Holy Spirit to do the work God has given us to do. Pray with me that God will make us increasingly diverse. Pray that God will increase our love for one another. Jesus promises that we ask for this. He will ask the Father and it will be done. Amen.